Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And you could be forgiven for thinking it's 1961 again with all of the big civil rights anniversaries that have been in the news this year, 50th anniversaries. That's so true. Um, most notably, the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides this past May, when more than 400 people of all ages, male, female, black, white, different religions from all over the country, decided to challenge the racial segregation of interstate buses. Yeah, and the Freedom Rides have been really well covered this year. There have been articles, news stories, two reunions of riders, one in Jackson, Mississippi, one in Chicago. I think that one was hosted by Oprah herself. There was a fantastic American Experience documentary based on the book on the Freedom Riders by Raymond Arsenault. There have been op-eds and reflections from the riders in national papers. But we are not ones to let the May anniversary of the Freedom Ride stop us from doing a podcast on them in September, because September is also a really important date for the Freedom Rides. It's when change actually happened, when the Interstate Commerce Commission finally ruled that the signs segregating whites and blacks at bus and train facilities had to come down and actually backed up that ruling with a really hefty fine for offenders. So that ruling validated the riders in their tactics. And that's worth pointing out before we get into this two-part episode on the Freedom Rides and before we get into how the ride started, because even though today the riders are clearly celebrated as civil rights heroes, at the time what they were doing was extremely controversial, even within the civil rights movement itself. So they didn't know what they were what they were setting out to do. They just knew they had to do it. Yeah. But before we even get to the rides themselves, our story really starts in 1944 with a woman named Irene Morgan. Now, everyone knows Rosa Parks, right, and her refusal to give up her bus seat in the 1950s. But a decade earlier, Morgan refused to give up her seat on a Greyhound traveling through Virginia. And Morgan, who made World War II bomber planes for a plant for a living, was coming home to Baltimore after visiting her mother. So after refusing to move, she kicked the sheriff's deputy who tried to take her off the bus. And later she said, quote, I started to bite him, but he looked dirty, so I couldn't bite him. So all I could do was claw and tear his clothes. Yeah, and that and other great quotes are from her New York Times obituary. But Morgan was arrested and went ahead and paid that $100 fine for resisting arrest. But she refused to pay the $10 fine for violating a Virginia law about segregated seating. So it was off to court she went. And eventually the NAACP took up her case and appealed to the Supreme Court. And in 1946, the court actually ruled in her her favor in Morgan versus Virginia. And um, just the gist of the ruling here, seating arrangements for the different races in interstate motor travel require a single uniform rule to promote and protect national travel. Sounds simple enough. Basically, you can't make African-Americans sit in the back of the bus and white people sit in the front. Nobody should be giving up their seat unless it's just to an old person or, or something like that. So it sounds simple, but it wasn't because southern states continued to flaunt the law with segregated seating, segregated waiting rooms, restrooms, water fountains. So eventually, 
somebody decided that they needed to do something and actually test out this new law. And that was a group organized by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. They decided to test the new ruling by staging the journey of reconciliation through the Upper South. The Upper South. Yeah, and that's important here, especially when we get into the later Freedom Rides where they head into Alabama and Mississippi and and things get a lot different. Back in 1947, they knew that wasn't an option. Right. So basically... This is how it worked. Eight black men and eight white men would ride on interstate buses and trains and see if Morgan versus Virginia was a law in action or in name only. So there was a catch, though. It would be nonviolent. Even if they were faced with arrests or beatings, the riders would not react. So while Morgan had been the inspiration for this, she was obviously not their nonviolent role model. No, with her attempted bites and all of that. I think that makes Morgan such an interesting character in this whole thing, too, which is such a famous nonviolent movement that she is the inspiration for it. But for that nonviolent inspiration, leaders instead turned to Gandhi, and he actually was the inspiration for Course founding back in 1942. But the journey of reconciliation, it sounds like it's going to make waves. It sounds like a big deal, but it really didn't have that much of an impact. The riders did meet with violence. Three of them spent a month on a North Carolina chain gang after violating segregation rules in Chapel Hill. But the story wasn't really picked up by national media, and folks just weren't that interested. So Arsenault writes that the ride ultimately, quote, brought about little change and was soon forgotten by all but a handful of nonviolent activists. So a decade goes by. And then in 1960, some important things start to happen to inspire a new wave of freedom rides. One of those things is that JFK is elected president. Another is that Nashville sit-ins end segregation at city lunch counters there. And also the Supreme Court issues another decision related to interstate travel. This time it's Boynton versus Virginia, which made any racial segregation illegal in interstate commerce, and that's anything. So not only should a black person be able to take any seat on the bus, he should also be able to use any waiting room, restroom, coffee counter, and so on. All right. So there's a new Supreme Court decision and this momentum going from the Nashville sit-ins. And CORE and its director, James Farmer, decide, let's test this new ruling, Boynton versus Virginia. So this time, not only would the new riders keep that direct action movement of the sit-ins going, they would help promote CORE, too, on this national scale, since it was, after all, less well-known than the NAACP or SNCC or the SCLC. And that's something, as we mentioned in the beginning, that this was kind of controversial within the movement. That was something that added to the ambivalence or sometimes outright hostility directed at the initial ride by much of the movement. Um, but we've got to give you a sense of how these initial core riders were picked because they weren't just willy-nilly passengers on the bus. They all had to be trained. They all had to come with recommendations, even. And again, they all kind of came from different sort of facets of life. One member, James Peck, was from Manhattan, and he had participated in the 1940s Journey of Reconciliation. So he had some experience with this. The others were handpicked to maintain their nonviolent directive. So in addition to having to get recommendations, as Sarah said, the youngest of them also had to get parental permission. 
They also underwent careful training to resist that violent impulse, but really they only anticipated refusal of service and possibly maybe arrest. You can see videos, though, of this training, and it's pretty fascinating to watch and really uncomfortable because you know it is a simulated situation, and these people actually all know each other well. There's the man playing the antagonizer, the woman playing the waitress, and it's strange to see, but as you mentioned, they were from all different walks of life. They were all ages, all professions, students, retirees, editors. There was a folk singer. And most were from the North or the Midwest, with a few Southern exceptions, including probably the most famous writer, John Lewis, who's from Alabama. Um, but that's something also to consider when we were mentioning earlier about the hostility or ambivalence within the movement, that these people were largely Northerners, were largely Midwesterners, and they were coming into the South to to test these segregated Jim Crow rules. So the first riders left May 4th, 1961. They were departing from Washington, D.C., and ultimately the final destination was going to be New Orleans, which it's a bus ride that was going to take a while, and they didn't really know what they would encounter along the way. But the bus started out winding its way through Virginia and North Carolina. There were 13 riders. They were taking Greyhound and Trailways buses, so two different lines, just testing out the whole range of the system. And at first, they really saw what they expected. Stations would sort of reluctantly break from their segregationist policies just while the riders were there. So just go ahead and let them sit in the black sitting room or the white sitting room, whatever race they weren't. Let them use the wrong restroom, whatever they were doing, and then just um, let them be let them get on their bus and move on through town, get out of their hair, and presumably return to business as usual, which was full-on segregation. But by Charlotte, North Carolina, that wasn't what was happening anymore. People weren't just letting it slide until they were gone. Trouble started. There were arrests and beatings in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And by May 13th, the riders finally made it to Atlanta, where they had this little get-together sort of pause in the ride planned with Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, and they were really hoping that when they got there, he would join in, become a freedom rider with them. But instead, he took a very different attitude. He, he warned them. He told them that he had heard bad news coming out of Alabama, and they should seriously reconsider continuing on. And qu- even questioning the wisdom of what they were doing in the first place, whether this was really helping the movement. So this is pretty discouraging news to hear at their Atlanta reception. And to make matters worse, James Farmer, the leader of CORE, gets word that his father has died and has to pull out for a few days to go home. Still, though, May 14th, Mother's Day, the leaderless riders set off from Atlanta to Birmingham, Alabama on Greyhound and Trailways buses that are leaving one hour apart. And sure enough, shortly after crossing the Alabama state line, one of the buses runs into trouble. The Greyhound hits a crowd of about 200 men in Anniston. Yeah, and it's all been planned. A Klansman lies down in front of the bus so that the other members of the mob can slash the tires. And the bus maneuvers out of town, but it's followed and hounded by a car. Then finally, the tires go flat. The driver gets out, checks them, and walks away. Just leaves the people on the bus. And there's this really harrowing scene in the documentary where passenger May Francis Moultrie hears someone shouting, Where is the gas? Where is the gas? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend to you that documentary for seeing some of these freedom riders reflect on it and, and say what they heard and what they experienced. But the mob attacks the bus then and throws a firebomb in through the back window and then blocks the door to prevent the people from getting off. And also keep in mind, there aren't just freedom riders on this bus. There are regular passengers, too, who are just trying to get to Birmingham or wherever and are caught up in this. Two things ultimately save the riders and those unaffiliated bus passengers. The fuel tank explodes, which makes the mob back away from the bus. And then highway patrolmen finally arrive, but not until the coughing, choking passengers who have just escaped from the bus are beaten by the crowd. There's one catch, though, with this with this violent scene. Photographs are taken, and it becomes a major news story. And yeah, they go worldwide. Yeah, not just a national news story. It becomes worldwide news, something terrible happening in the United States. But meanwhile, that second bus is still chugging on toward Birmingham. Yeah, where little did they know, the city's commissioner of public safety, Bull Connor, has made a deal with the KKK. The deal is that when the bus comes to town the Klan will get 15 minutes without police interference. To do whatever they want to yeah. the people on the bus. No arrests, no trouble at all. And there's another catch to this, too. The FBI had an informant in the Klan, and he knew the plan to attack the bus. J. Edgar Hoover didn't report the mob's plans to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The informant even participated when the mob attacked and beat the riders as they came into the station. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little more in the part two of this episode and and some of the legal battles that ensued. But just like in Aniston, photographers get pictures of this mob attacking the passengers coming from Atlanta. And this news makes uh, international headlines, too. It's very disturbing to people, and it's something that um, the federal administration really can't ignore. So Jim Peck, who has been unofficially in charge since James Farmer left, makes the call to continue the ride from the hospital. He has been severely beaten, and it's uh, worth noting here, too, that a lot of the white riders would be targeted initially, sort of as betrayers to their race by the mob. So Jim Peck was really, really bad off. Pictures of him are disturbing to see, but he said that they felt Quote, they must not surrender to violence. So let's not stop here. There's a problem, though. Like, I mean, that's a very noble, brave thing to do to try to continue the ride. But there's a problem. None of the drivers out of Birmingham are willing to take them. Nobody wants to risk it. Nobody wants to risk being on a firebomb bus or attacked by a mob and and dragged down with the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, you can hardly blame them. But they finally decide that the ride has to end. They'll fly to New Orleans instead. But even that proves to be quite difficult. The mob follows them. A bomb threat is called in on their plane, and it seems that they're stuck in Alabama indefinitely. Can't get out of the the Birmingham airport. So like we said, by this point, the Kennedys really have to get involved with this story all over the world's papers and the poor, beaten freedom riders stuck in the airport. They can't let things get any worse. So John Siegenthaler, who is the assistant to Attorney General Robert Kennedy, arranges the riders' flight 
flight and escorts them to New Orleans. There they're met by state police at the plane who protect them but also curse them as they walk to the terminal. And that ends the ride. It's over. The Kennedys think that hopefully it's all over. Um, They can get back to international pursuits. But it's not because there is another wave setting out from Nashville. The students in the Nashville student movement realized that they couldn't let CORE's attempt end there, end in violence. And the leader of that movement, Diane Nash, who was a student in the Nashville movement, told a Birmingham reverend, quote, if they stop us with violence, the movement is dead. So... It's our little cliffhanger for this episode. Yeah, in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about that Nashville movement as it picks up the baton and as riots continue in Alabama and Mississippi plays hardball with its state penitentiary. Mm -hmm. So just to give you a little teaser there, but we're done with this for today. If you have any ideas to send us for podcasts or any thoughts on this one that you want to share, we're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at History. And we also have an article about the civil rights movement. I bet we're going to be recommending this one quite a bit in the next few episodes on the Freedom Rides, but it is called How the Civil Rights Movement Worked, and you can find it by searching for civil rights on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.